the book of Acts. We're coming to look at Acts chapter 16. And this account of Luke's, of the conversion of the Philippian jailer. It's sometimes a question that people are asked nowadays when they are introduced for the first time to someone else. Tell me your story. It's not something that those of us who are older would have been used to in our day. It seemed a little bit intrusive. But it's something now that people will genuinely ask of others. Tell me a little bit about your story. And one of the wonderful things about God's word is that God is so keen and enthusiastic that all of us would know the wonderful truths of scripture that he has different ways in his word of communicating with us. The Bible is not just all one style. Uh, it's sometimes poetry and sometimes history and sometimes clear commands. And very often in the, in the storyline bits of it we're, we are given focus on individual lives because the God of heaven knows that such things touch down in our lives. And so we often find in the Gospels and in Acts uh, clear accounts of the stories of men and women as they're confronted with the good news of the Gospel. And Acts chapter 16 has three stories, three personal stories. Uh, we would give uh, details if someone asked what our story was, but we would say about the family we were born into. Maybe we would share something about some particular experience that had really shaped our lives. Maybe we would share some key moment that we would say that was the, the moment that, that shaped my life. Well, if we were asking uh, these individuals at Philippi, tell us your story, they would have shared with us the great event of their lives that God had come breaking in. And Luke gives us this record of God breaking into the lives of uh, three people, uh, a businesswoman, Lydia, that we saw last time. She, we could say, was someone who was seeking for God. God had been stirring her. And then the Lord Jesus wonderfully finds her and changes her life by the, by the riverside. Uh, we're not looking at the, the young teenage girl whose life is just broken. And we're not given too many details of what happened in her life. But uh, we can uh, surely say that Sam is in between these two other conversion stories. And we hear of these two others being baptized, acknowledged as part of the church that she too was incorporated in the life of the church. And today we're looking at the unnamed jailer. God, of course, knew his name. And this man is a man who seemed to have no previous interest in the things of God. Yet God wonderfully changed him. Maybe that's the encouragement that you need today because you pray regularly, maybe daily for someone and they have no interest in God just now. Well, that's no difficulty to God as we'll see in this story. And uh, in the book of Acts earlier, in chapter 3 and 19, we read there that God says, Repent therefore and be converted, that your sins may be blotted out. So whatever your story is today, one of the important things in that story ought to be, um, am I a man or woman or a young person that God has broken into my life? Uh, it's not always the same. 
Some have the wonderful privilege of God breaking very early into their lives, maybe even in infancy, and grew up with a great love for Jesus Christ and a deepening faith. Others can remember a time when this great wonderful change that God brings to pass came to bear on their lives. For the Philippian jailer, the backstory you'll see there that Paul and Silas have been imprisoned. Uh, in verse 22 and 23, they, they were attacked by the crowd because they had been used of God for the deliverance of this teenage girl who was caught up in the occult and her life had been changed. She was no longer making money for her owners. And the people are incensed by that and Paul and Silas are beaten there, you'll see, beaten with rods. In those days, the magistrate would walk through the town with, a, with some police officers with a bundle of rods and an axe over their shoulder, and these rods were drawn out, so the magistrate said, well, this person deserves the beating. And so Paul and Silas have been beaten. They have been thrown into uh, custody. They're, the order is given there in verse 23 that they're to be kept safely. They're a great threat, these men, uh, the city feels. So let's follow the jailer's story. And there are just four words that uh, we could look at that summarize his story. First, careless. Here was a man who was careless about his soul. Uh, he has a great job, this, this gentleman. He, he may have been a veteran, uh, uh, someone from the Roman army who's retired, some commentators would suggest. And uh, he's got this position now as uh, in charge of the jail at Philippi, uh, the leading city of Macedonia. And uh, no doubt he was pleased with his job. And no doubt in, in such a position, he would have been tuned in to everything that was happening in Philippi. And obviously he had many prisoners that had gone through his prison. But these two men who were in the jail at Philippi that night were special. He was aware of that. He, he puts them in the stock, in the inner stocks, in the inner part of the prison. So he knows that there's something special about these men. Knows that they're unique. And that uniqueness was added to when we read in verse 25 that about midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God. And the prisoners were listening to them. When we looked at the overview, remember I said to you that it was most likely they were singing one of the, the, the psalms that uh, call on God to break in and change the situation. And uh, here are these other prisoners and they're listening to Paul and Silas and uh, Paul and Silas are having an impact on their lives. Uh, maybe that's part of your story, is it? That it was God used some other Christians to, to, to speak into your life. Or, or maybe you're, you were like the jailer actually and he seems not to have been listening at all. There, there's no mention of him sitting there listening to all that was going on. He, he doesn't seem, we, would, we use a little phrase in English, someone doesn't bat an eyelid. Uh, he's just not interested. All he seems to have wanted was a quiet life and get to his bed. In verse 27, where we see that he, that he woke up. He, he just wants to get to bed. Not really interested who's in the prison. He's just careless. 
Here these two special men and they're, they're praying to God. What's that about? And they're, they're singing these rather strange songs. He seems just not to be bothered at all. And his carelessness is even more apparent as the night goes on. We read in verse 26 that uh, suddenly there was a great earthquake. Uh, it seems to have been sent by God with laser-like precision to the prison itself so that it's the prison that's shaking and the chains are falling off the, the prisoners and the doors are, are swinging open and obviously the, the noise of it all and the commotion stirs the Philippian jailer and we're told in verse 27 when the jailer woke and saw that the prison doors were open he drew his sword and was about to kill himself supposing that the prisoners had escaped what a strange choice he's petrified of his superiors and he had every reason to be he knew what the penalty would be and uh, uh, that in those days if uh, a prisoner didn't uh, get the judgment that was passed on him and uh, something happened that had escaped well those who were supposed to be looking after after the prisoner they would get the punishment but as we think about what this man was supposed to do it's reflective is it not of the, of the carelessness of his soul he's more bothered about the uh, the, the magistrates than he was with meeting God. His, his life just speaks of, of carelessness about his soul. And that carelessness that's evident in this man's life, that's pandemic. It's everywhere around about us. And it's actually in us all by nature. The Apostle Paul would write later to the church at Corinth in 1 Corinthians 4 and verse, verse 4, the God of this age, the devil he was speaking of, has blinded the minds of unbelievers. That's what this jailer was like. He was blind spiritually. He, he couldn't see what the big needs of his life were. In Ephesians 4 and 18, the, the apostle Paul uh, uh, writing of unbelievers says they are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them. That's man by nature. Ignorant, darkened, blinded, utterly careless to the things that really matter. Just think of the energy people put into looking after the, their body. They'll take on a membership at the gym, perhaps, and go several times a week. They'll visit the supermarket or the uh, shop and buy all sorts of lotions for washing themselves and smoothing out the wrinkles. And they'll just spend all their thinking and their energy on their on their on their body that lasts just here for a little while, whereas to think about their soul just doesn't ever seem to enter their mind. And if you'd been talking to this Philippian jailer and said to him, "Tell me your story," 
the first thing he would have said would be, well, my story, my journey to faith in Christ, it didn't start very well. I was cursed. That's a great encouragement, isn't it? When we stand and talk to people, when we speak to our friends, and they're just so cursed. Maybe, maybe you this morning, actually. Oh, you're here. Careless because you haven't yet trusted Jesus Christ. Here's this jailer. He was careless about his soul. But secondly, he was concerned. He was concerned about his need. He's on a journey. Careless. And then he becomes concerned. And God was at work in it all. We've seen previously in this chapter that God was at work in the background governing all the details and all of the events. Paul and Silas and the team hadn't even thought of coming to Philippi. You remember how they wanted to go uh, uh, when they were just nearby to Antioch and they wanted to go on into their own province of Asia and haven't been able to do that. And they say, well, let's go north up towards the Black Sea and weren't able to do that. And then God had called them to cross the Aegean and come to Macedonia. And God was guiding it, working out that, that these missionaries will, will come to Philippi so that Lydia will hear, so that the teenage girl would hear. And he governs all of the events so that this, uh, this jailer is there in that jail and in that city. He governed all of the events of the, of the crowds even their wickedness he was sovereign over so that Paul and Silas would come to this prison because God had a planned meeting with the Philippian jailer. Of course, at the start, he's just careless. He knows nothing about the orchestrating of God behind the scenes. And then God sent the earthquake. It was to shake not only open the prison doors and to shake the chains from the, and the shackles from the prisoners, but it was designed to shake this man. And it did shake him. At least at the start, it shook him physically and he woke from his slumber. You can picture the scene, I'm sure. He's been sleeping and all around him starts to shake and the noise of it. And he's rubbing sleep from his eyes, clearing the dust off his garments. And he's thinking about what has obviously happened. And he's drawing out his sword. And he's about to take his own life. When Paul's voice comes echoing through the dust and the darkness in verse 28, Paul cried with a loud voice, Do not harm yourself. For we are all here. It's very graphic, isn't it? God wants us to enter this story and to see this man's journey and, and to hear him calling for lights in verse 29. Rushing in and trembling with fear and falling down before Paul and Silas. A crisis had broken from the shores of this man's life. An earthquake was sent to stir him and awaken him not only physically 
but to be the avenue through which God would come to speak with a, in a greater volume into his life. God sometimes does that. Maybe, maybe you've heard of that in some people's lives. Uh, a crisis came to their life. Maybe it was your journey. I, as I was thinking of this, uh, in preparing this, I was thinking about 25 years ago and uh, I went to meet a man I, I hadn't known and he had, he had uh, gone into hospital, uh, just recently diagnosed with, uh, uh, with cancer and uh, all of a sudden was aware his days would be, would be shorter. He was 50 years of age. I can still picture it as I, as I speak to you and, and going to his bedside and chatting to him a little while. And uh, uh, the providence of God has caused our, our, our lives to pass, uh, the, our paths to pass one another. And uh, I said, I read, can I read some of the Bible for you? And I, I opened in Psalm 22 and read him in Psalm 22, Jesus Christ from the cross. And I... I explained the gospel to him. And he's, I can never forget what he said at the end. He said, I've been alive all these years and I've never heard that before. And it was in that crisis that he came to profess faith in Jesus Christ. You know, sometimes God does that. He, he sends a crisis moment, an event, a circumstance... Uh, his megaphone, wasn't it, C.S. Lewis said, uh, uh, to, sp to increase the volume of speaking into our lives. The, 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 the circumstances themselves will never awaken anyone, but sometimes God sends them as a, as a channel through, through which he'll speak. And in the darkness, this Philippian jailer begins to see all the irony of it all. And in verse 30, he brought them out and he said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? I don't think he was converted yet. He's on his journey. And uh, is there still a little hint of some measure of confusion even yet? What am I to do? Is there something I can do if, if I'm to be right with God? Sometimes that happens, people, when they begin to be concerned about their spiritual needs. They, they begin to imagine, well, maybe there's some change I can bring about in my life. Um, maybe I'll, I'll go back home and I'll, I'll try and be a better father or a better uh, mother or better uncle or I'll be a better worker and I'll do an honest day's work from now on and... Uh, I'm going to try some religious things. But God was giving this man his, this wake-up call. Not for him to try harder to please God, because that would never work. But to show him that Jesus Christ was everything that he needed. He was careless. And he's begun to be concerned. Begun to be convicted. And we see thirdly, he's called. He was called to faith in Christ. You see, the jailer asked the right question. That's always a good thing, isn't it, to ask the right question. If you want to know how to get somewhere, it's probably a good idea if you use the name of that place and the question that you're asking. And equally important is the right answer. 
What must I do to be saved? Has he heard Paul and Silas talking? Has he, although maybe not wanting to hear at all, heard some little snippets in passing? Perhaps. But he certainly gets a very clear answer. And they said, verse 31, Believe in the Lord Jesus and you'll be saved and your households. Oh, how kind God was to this man to give him this very clear answer. You know, some people can become a little bit concerned spiritually and they don't ask the right question. Others ask the right question, but not to the right people. And they hear some fool. I was out in the street on Thursday uh, uh, inviting people along to, to, to worship and uh, stopped this lady to, to speak to her and uh, offered her a little invitation to church. And uh, she gladly took it. She said, as, as long as we can swap. And she got her rucksack off her back and she had three pages of stuff she wanted to, to swap with me. Didn't think it was a very good deal. All I had was one tiny little card. And what utter <coughs> nonsense it was. From beginning to end. I, I couldn't make any deal of it. I wasn't sure what church it was from or what message it was from. <coughs> Imagine someone had asked her up the street, what must I do to be saved? And she'd taken this rubbish out of her bag. Asked the right people and... This man asked the right people and they tell him, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you'll be saved. And this Philippian jailer would say to us today, if he were here, let me tell you what my journey involved at that moment. He would say to us, I saw my need. I saw my need. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved, you and your households. And it seems that the penny is dropping, as we would say, and truth is percolating into every corner of his mind, and he realizes his need, not for sleep, but for salvation. Well, you do know that, don't you? Let me remind you that our sin makes us guilty before God and liable to his judgment. The wages of sin, the Bible says, is death. Paul writes in Romans 1, the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. That's everybody by nature, unrighteous, ungodly. We don't measure up all of sin and fallen short and are under the holy wrath of God. You see, it wasn't his boss that the Philippian jailer needed to fear, it was God. And that's the same for you this morning. If you're not yet a Christian, the one person you need to fear is God. He's your biggest problem. And he's your only answer. Because he's the one who can pardon the guilty and break the power of sin. In this call, he saw his need. In this call, he was told that rescue is free. Have you ever watched on television 
some of those wonderful documentaries about the Royal National Lifeboat Institution. They're fabulous, very courageous men and women taking out to the seas in their either the big lifeboat or their little inflatable lifeboat, bouncing up over these enormous waves, all to get to the foot of some rock where someone's been out walking their dog and the tides come in and they're going to die. But the lifeboat is coming. And it's a rather strange thing, isn't it? As the little boat comes in close, there's always a lifeboat man and he takes out one of those little credit card machines that you would get in the shop uh, or get in the restaurant and he says, now before you jump over, have you got your card for payments? Well, of course not. It's absolutely free. And that's what the Apostle Paul was saying to uh, saying to this man, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved, you and your household. It's free because Jesus Christ has done it all. Our great need was for someone to keep the law for us. Do you know that? That God demands of you and me perfection. Keeping the law of God in every part. But we can't. And we not only couldn't, but we wouldn't. And God sent his son, Jesus Christ, who, who kept the law in every part. Do you remember how at the end of his life, over and over, when Pilate was trying him, he said, I find no guilt in this man. And it was God saying, he's kept the law perfectly. He's the perfect sacrifice. And we need someone, don't we, who can then take the punishment that we deserved and that's Jesus Christ Give, gave this perfect life of his as a ransom for many paid the price for a broken law he was told of his need he was told that rescue is free and he was told to trust in Jesus Christ believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved so there's that little Royal Navy lifeboat coming in to the, beside the person who's just there on that last foot of rock before the tide sweeps them away to death and the little lifeboat comes in and is the person going to be jumping up and down the rock saying, no, I'm going to swim for it? Not unless they're completely mad. They'll know that the only safe thing for them to do, the only wise thing to do, is to get into the lifeboats. And this verse actually is asking every single one of us, have you got into the lifeboat of Jesus Christ? There's no point in someone who's needing to be rescued said, actually, would you rescue somebody else instead? This man knew he needed rescued and he hears this call to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's what he does. What does it mean? You see, that's the most important thing to understand. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you'll be saved. You'll notice it's not go and do some religious thing. It's trust in Jesus Christ. So it's imperative that we know what it means. It's not a general belief in God. The devil believes in God. And he's destined for 
the, the pits forever and ever where he belongs. To believe in a saving way is to realize Jesus Christ is my only hope. And I turn from my sin and I trust him to be my saviour. That in him I'll be pardoned and a new life before God. And that's what this man did. He put his trust in Jesus Christ. But then finally, as we think of this man's life. What was his story? What was his journey? He was converted. He was converted to Christ. Now if I said to you this morning... We decided during the week that we would take our little silver family saloon, Peugeot 308, and we had decided, Heather had decided, for some strange reason, she was going to get it converted into a rally car. Well, you would say, I would like to see the evidence of that, wouldn't you? And you would expect me to be able to take you outside and show you the roll cage inside and three huge spotlights along the front, and nice, nice stripes up the side of it, and all the rest of evidence of conversion. Well, we haven't. But if you're saying today that, I, that you've believed on Jesus Christ as your Savior, there will be evidence of your conversion. There was evidence for Lydia, we saw that previously, and there's evidence in this Philippian jailer that his life has been changed by God. Just look at verse 33 and 34. And he took them the same hour of the night and washed their wounds. He took these prisoners out of their cell, was it to an adjacent apartment where he lives, somewhere part of the prison complex, wherever nearby, he takes these prisoners that the, that the magistrates were so hyper about putting in the inner cell. He takes them to his own home, washes their wounds. And verse 34, brought them into his house and set food before them. Here is a man who's changed. Here is a man who realizes that these people are now his people. That their God is now his God. That their family, that's one of the ways actually, one of the evidence of a Christian, that the, that, that the people of God, you, you see, well, they're my family. I, I love their company. I love their conversation more than anything else. Uh, here's a man who, who's wanting to advance the cause of Christ. He's ready to help these, these key ambassadors of Christ. It's another evidence conversion that... You're interested in the things of God's kingdom. This man also, we're told, that, that very night he was baptized. He's got the sign of the covenant put upon him. He's, re he's ready to receive that and say, this is what God has done for me. And in that too, he's acknowledging in a very visible way, he belongs to the people of God. Oh, what joy floods his soul. And he rejoiced, verse 34, along with his entire household, that he'd believed in God. There was a joy about his life now that hadn't been before. Surely prison warden is filled with joy because his sins have been pardoned 
and he's been declared right with God. And what a blessing it all had on his household. The household get to hear. In verse 32, And they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in his house. We're not told what age any of them were. But they all hear. And they all have the blessing of this changed man in their house. You do know that unbelief is the mother of all sins. Jesus said that. He, he said it's far worse than open, aggressive homosexuality. The sin of unbelief in Jesus Christ. It's far greater than that, Jesus said. It's Jesus saying, actually, there are men and women in churches up and down our land today and haven't yet trusted in Jesus Christ. And before God, they are greater sinners than the men and women who march in gay pride parades. Because they've heard all this glorious news about Jesus Christ. And they said, no, I'm not interested. It's the mother of all sins. And Jesus said it'll be far worse for Sodom and Gomorrah on the day of judgment. Or far worse for them rather than for the, for the people of Sodom and Gomorrah. Because not to trust Christ is such a heinous sin. And not to trust Christ... It brings such awful things to others. You know, it's a terrible thing in this community that, that this building isn't full of fathers and mothers in this community. It's an awful thing. And it's doubly awful because their unbelief keeps their children in the dark. Oh, this man's life was changed. His family are now in the light. His life is filled with joy. And he has a wonderful story. Your story might be slightly different. But to be a Christian is to be converted. To realize our sin and to have personally trusted in Jesus Christ. So what's your story? Just as we finish, let me tell you very briefly another man's story. It was four years after the Titanic sank. And a man stood up at a meeting in Ontario, Canada, and he told his story. It began, he began with the words, I'm a survivor of the Titanic. That would have got a hearing, wouldn't it? And he began to tell his story. When the ship went down, I was in the sea, drifting alone in the dark. And with a change of the tide, a man was washed close to me. His name was John Harper, 40 years of age, a Scottish Baptist pastor. And John said to this man, floating there in the darkness, Man, are you saved? And the man replied, No, I am not. To which John spoke back immediately through the darkness and in the shivering cold, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you'll be saved. The man went on to tell his story. He said that John had drifted away from where he, where he was floating. But a little while later, 
with the current or whatever it was of the waves, John once more was washed up close to this man. And again he asked, are you saved yet? No, was the man's reply. And again, John Harper said, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. And the man says, I watched him then go down. And there, in that cold, icy water, with two miles of ocean beneath me, I believed on the Lord Jesus Christ, and I was saved. I was John Harper's last convert. So, what's your story? Amen. Well, let's sing praise to God. And what wonderful words to sing praise to God with and more wonderful words than the words of Psalm 130. Lord from the depths I call thee. Maybe the words that you need just to speak to God for yourself. Psalm 130a, let's sing God's praise.
take a little time if you can stay with us to pray for 10 or 15 minutes we appreciate that but you have to dash you understand that too uh, some matters for prayer